Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Myelin Institute podcast. Today, we're very pleased to be able to welcome as our guest, Jonathan Hopkin, who is a professor at the LSE. And Jonathan is the author of a new book called Anti-System Politics, The Crisis of Market Liberalism in Rich Democracies. The book looks at the political counter movements that have arisen on the left and the right in Southern Europe, in the UK and the US since the 2008 financial crisis, positioning these as forms of anti-system politics that are a response to the failures of neoliberal orthodoxy. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Tim. Thanks for Uh, having me on. No problem at all. I guess we could just start out by you outlining the kind of main thesis of the book, really, for our listeners. Right. Yeah. I mean, in the most boiled down version I can manage, I suppose what I'm what I'm trying to do is explain why our politics seems upside down, not just here or even not just here and in the US, but also across a lot of what I call the rich democracies sort of the advanced Western democracies would be uh, the sort of traditional way of calling it. So, you know, there's been a period of, on the one hand, a lot of sort of instability in party politics, like unexpected election results. And on the other, a lot of emergence of kind of new political forces that have maybe existed before, but were almost irrelevant. And then suddenly getting loads of votes or even winning power. And, you know, just a general kind of disrupted form of democratic politics and I suppose reaches its um, culmination with the storming of the capital but of course my book was was finished out by then but but that fits very much into the story I'm trying to understand why normal service in democratic politics seems to be suspended and you know the subtitle of the book the crisis of market liberalism in rich democracies points very much the finger at the economy so given that there is a kind of debate about why what I call anti-system politics, what others maybe call populism, is coming on so strong in the last decade or so. You know, there's this debate between a more economics-focused argument and an argument based around kind of cultural backlash, backlash against immigration, refugees, and, and so on. And I'm trying to make the argument that I think it's very much about economics and that we can't really fully understand what's going on without looking at the sort of longer term causes in uh, what's happened to um, sort of Western capitalism. And the implication of which, of course, is that we can't really make our politics more stable without addressing some of the economic problems that we're facing. Oh, well, that's a, that's a great summary, certainly uh, better than I could have managed on my own, I'm sure. Now, as you say, there is this debate uh, going on uh, between people who give, if you like, more economic explanations for what's happening and people give more cultural explanations for what's happening. I guess somebody coming to your book may wonder if it's really that important that we we choose between the two explanations. Um, you know, some academics, you know, Peter Hall, Noam Gidrum, for example, say, well, actually, it's quite difficult because they're they're all bound up with each other. What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose in a way, you know, now I'm at the stage of kind of thinking, what could I have done better in the book? <laughs> Which bits have I got wrong? I mean, I think probably I might have maybe understated the importance of culture, sort of put all the onus on kind of economic factors. And and, it, and one thing that I, I kind of do mention briefly in the book, but don't elaborate too much on, is that I don't really believe that economic factors are completely objective realities that produce automatically any particular kind of political outcome. And indeed, one of the kind of, I guess, intervening variables in the book is the way in which different types of attitudes towards what we could broadly call social cultural values 
and the ways in which these vary across generations does actually do part of the job of explaining why in some countries sort of right-wing populism has been the most um, um, prominent feature of anti-system politics. And in other countries, we've had very sort of strong resurgence of radical leftism. And the argument there is that, you know, in, in countries where younger parts of the population and those most likely to have progressive social attitudes, and that generally means younger and more educated people, in countries where those kinds of people are most affected by the economic crisis, you're more likely to get an anti-system politics of the left, whereas in countries where older and less educated parts of the population uh, are more exposed to economic threats, then that's where you tend to get um, a, a more right-wing variant. And I suppose in some countries you get both, right? I mean, yeah. could one point to the UK, for example, and, and suggest that, um, you know, you've got uh, the kind of Corbynist Labour to some extent representing that kind of at least left populist, if not anti-system left. And, and you've got UKIP, the Brexit Party, and even some people would say in a kind of ersatz form, the Conservative Party representing an anti-system party or at least a populist party on the right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, obviously now Keir Starmer's uh, taking Labour in a different direction, but until, you know, a little bit less than a year ago, you know, my own would be that the, the entire British party system has been taken over by anti-system politics in the sense that Labour was very much representing this kind of anti-capitalist, anti-system politics, which we see, you know, not only here, but also in the Sanders movement or the squad, you know, AOC and other similar figures in the Democratic Party in the US, but also, you know, Podemos in Spain, currently in government, of course, with the socialists, the Five Stars movement in Italy, a bit more ambiguously, Syriza in Greece and so on. And of course, on the right, you know, the Conservative Party has been captured by a sort of very radical, you know, uh, nationalist, economic protectionist uh, strand of conservatism, not perhaps in such a, an, a, an exaggerated form as in, in the US, where the Republican Party is no longer really mainstream conservative party at all but but certainly you know the um, the way in which the conservatives have have suddenly become the party of brexit and you know a prime minister or a leading figure in the conservative party can say f business a few eyelids were batted but it, it kind of didn't even seem so outrageous this you know signifies a really radical shift in what these parties represent. When we when we come on to brexit i mean you suggest that the eu in some sense has got the blame for the austerity that uh, George Osborne and, and David Cameron had uh, unleashed on the country after 2010. But I mean, how would you react to what I bet would be a kind of Conservative Party or Leave response to that idea? Namely that, you know, you're some typical lefty pro-European academic and you just can't bear to admit that people voted to leave the EU because, you know, they got wise to how wasteful and interfering the EU is and they wanted out of it. They, it wasn't that they wanted Brexit because of some kind of false consciousness on their part or, or because of the economy. What would you say to that argument? Well, first of all, I would say guilty as charged in that um, I am a typical left-leaning, card-carrying, pro-European academic. So, um, you know, I mean, there's no doubt that I, th I guess both of us inhabit this world in which, you know, it's true that, you know, the day after Brexit and then the day after Trump was elected, I remember going into the LSE and seeing jaws dropped <laughs> to to floor level all around the place. And it, it's no, there's no doubt that, that uh, I might, I'm predisposed not, not to s take a favourable view of Brexit. But the thing is, I mean, we're kind of seeing it now, you know, you know the, the costs of Brexit, you know, estimates vary and it may not turn out to be as bad as some people predict. But either way, 
I don't think there's any way in which it provides a solution to any of the problems that people were really concerned about, with one exception, and that is immigration. I think there is, you know, there's no doubt that immigration, the patterns of immigration are going to vary as a result of that. Whether there'll be less immigration in the medium to long run than there would have been before is anybody's guess, because in part, immigration, of course, responded to the needs of, of, of the economy. But in all of the respects, the idea that somehow, you know, the post-industrial north is going to revive because now we can make trade deals with with Singapore. None of that ever really made that much sense. It, it's true that Britain has a very long tradition of Euroscepticism. And if anyone had asked me 20 years ago, one country is going to leave the EU, which will be first, you know, we would have all probably said Britain. But it is also true that there are numerous reasons which are all to do with the way in which the UK politics works internally which do a much better job of explaining how we got to that point. Mm. I mean, would you go so far as to, you know, posit a counterfactual that if, for example, somehow Labour had held on at the 2010 election and mm. hadn't um, undertaken the kind of austerity policies that um, the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats did after after 2010, that we probably wouldn't have got Brexit even in the, the longer term? That's a really good question. And I I suppose I don't really set out to distinguish in the book because I, I place, obviously, I think that the global financial crisis, the hit that that many, that the average household took, especially in the countries most exposed to the global financial crisis, which have turned out to be the countries that have had most you know, political upheaval and the strongest resurgence of anti-system politics. And I try and show this in the book. All, all, all of these kind of short-term factors pile on top of a much longer-term process which you can date back really to the 1970s or, or, or certainly the 1980s in most countries, of the dismantling of a type of capitalism, which we could broadly call democratic capitalism or managed capitalism, you know, an economic system in which the government had a lot more control over things and a lot more of a role in trying to shape the economy and in particular in trying to cushion you know, as much as possible social groups from the effects of economic change. So you know, it's a much kind of longer term, broader story of how life has just become more precarious for many, many people. And of course, global financial crisis, it just was, you know, raining on damp ground, right? There was, there was already, uh, that's an Italian phrase, by the way, I'm not sure how well it translated, but um, it, 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 it sort of you know, that society was already stressed by a lot of the changes that have been going on. And then you get this massive shock to the system. And, you know, in a way, what surprised me a bit, and I mentioned this in the preface of the book, is is that it took so long. You know, it took a good half a decade uh, or, or more in some cases for the effects of the global financial crisis finally to, to come out. But when they did, you could trace them all the way back to deindustrialization in the 1980s, to changes to the welfare state in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, to changes in the labor market, which, you know, made life more precarious for people and which contributed to um, the increasing unpopularity of immigration in some countries, because, you know, by lowering labor standards, Britain is sort of top of the league for, for, for this in Western Europe, by lowering labor standards, it exposed British workers much, much more to um, competition from low paid workers 
uh, coming in from other countries. So, you know, I, you know, the financial crisis and short-term effects are important, but it's a much longer-term process that I'm pointing to. Yeah, I mean, on that historical note, I mean, is there ever a risk when we look at Britain in particular that people kind of overplay the the neoliberalism of, of say, the Blair-Brown governments? You know, mm. um, I mean, seen through a different lens, there's a, there's a lot that was pretty traditionally social democratic about uh, their governments. I mean, I admit I say this because, you know, I've lost count a number of times I've been lectured by people who weren't even born in the 1990s that Bear and Brown were were basically thatchering and there wasn't really any noticeable difference between them and and David Cameron and, and George Osborne. I mean, isn't there a risk sometimes that both Blair and neoliberalism, if you like, become kind of boo words or paste on labels for, for something that isn't quite, you know, quote unquote, real socialism? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly wouldn't go that far. I think there were really important differences between uh, the new Labour period and the and the 18 years of Conservative government before that. There were even big differences between the Thatcher and the Major period, in fact, because mm. what John, John Major is a kind of uh, an unsung hero of social democracy in Britain, that he actually reversed quite a lot of the spending cuts that, that the Thatcher mm. administrations had brought in. And mm. of course, presided over a good decade or so of, you know, fantastic economic growth, which was um, the economy that, that Labour inherited quite quite luckily, really, uh, after we were booted out of the European uh, monetary system. <laughs> so you can see all of these things uh, tied together. I think where Blair and Brown sort of, I guess, can have some responsibility, we can give them some responsibility for what happened mm. later, is they didn't really fundamentally restructure the British economy. They brought in a few measures which helped kind of paper over some of the social tensions that this very liberalized form of capitalism created. So you have sure start and tax credits and and some and boost to pensions, which by the way the Conservatives built on and and um, mm. even strengthened. So a lot of these things were very worthwhile, but what they didn't do, and in fact in some ways they aggravated this very financialized type of capitalism that we have in the UK, in which, you know, growing living standards was very reliant on the expansion of credit and the booming housing market. And and I think these chickens have come home to roost, both in the form of, you know, on the one hand, the kind of debt burden, which is, people are still carrying around since the financial crisis, because people build up a lot of debt, and then the crisis comes along, wage growth stops, and people suddenly find it hard to pay down their debts, and that has a knock-on effect on demand and so on. But the other side of it is, um, you know, the what happened to house prices, which has excluded, you know, basically anyone uh, under the age of 40, or, or maybe even a bit more than that, has just real trouble following mm. the traditional route um, onto the housing ladder. And this extends all the way up the income scale. And, you know, this, obviously, it's a more of an issue in the southeast than in the rest of the country. But I think anti-system politics in Britain, there's this Brexit side, which is predominantly amongst older voters, many of them homeowners. But then you've got the anti-system left, which is building very much on this resentment of the millennials and those a bit older who have not been able to get in the housing market and end up paying, you know, even if they earn good money, are paying these very high rents for often shoddy accommodation. Mm. Uh, so this is a, an example of the kind of social tensions which I see coming out over the last decade. And of course, the the other consequence of the Blair Brown government was to uh, allow in migrant workers, or in fact, of course, they were EU citizens, so strictly speaking, not migrant workers, after 2004, uh, in a way that wasn't true of most other countries apart from Sweden and Ireland. And presumably that has a bearing as well. Although you 
actually in some ways play down the role of immigration in Brexit, don't you? And and I guess that's going to come as a big surprise to many who, you know, followed the campaign and even now look at the kinds of things that uh, the Conservative Home Secretary says about immigration and think back to what Nigel Farage was banging on about all that time and think, well, immigration played an enormous role in uh, in us leaving the European Union. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose what I don't want to do is suggest that it doesn't matter that polls suggest, and there's plenty of survey evidence suggests that people who voted for Brexit were very likely to identify immigration as one of the main issues concerning them. And it's also true that after the um, EU enlargement, immigration found its way up the agenda and for a long time was the most salient issue for a lot of people, even before the economy crashed. So there's no doubt in that immigration mattered to people in the UK. What I'm trying to suggest is that it wouldn't have gone to the extent of pushing us out of the EU if there hadn't been an economic crisis, which made people desperate for some kind of fundamental mm. change. I mean, after mm. all, you know, resentment towards immigration is nothing new in Britain for a lot of the post-war period, 60s, 70s. I mean, mm. um, this is incidentally, this is kind of off the point, but as I was watching a fantastic documentary about uh, Joe Stroman and the clash, <laughs> and one of the things uh, that came out of that is that, you know, resentment towards immigration, racism, and backlash, you know, anti-racist movements were a big deal in, in sort of urban politics of Britain in the mm. 1970s. Mm. And yet mm. we didn't have UKIP, right? We had the National Front, but they didn't get any votes. They didn't get beyond being a kind of street movement. Mm. I mean, to get to 52% of the electorate, you need a lot more than just people feeling a bit uncomfortable because mm. they hear people with accents around or, mm. or see Polish shops appearing. You know, you need some much more fundamental, you know, anxiety Mm. Uh, and upset about about the way things are happening. You know, one of the points I'm trying to make in the book is it not it's not just about economics. It's about the the feeling among citizens that politics isn't going to make any difference to the way uh, their their lives uh, work because the political parties are not really competing over the big issues. That there's this kind of political cartel amongst the mainstream parties, and that's why you have to reach outside the normal party system and vote for these anti-system parties to address the problems that, that you think the country's facing. Actually, I mean, in some ways you suggest that, you know, anti-system parties are a kind of natural reaction to inadequately regulated market economies, don't you? I mean, does that mean that in some sense, you know, they could be, uh, even if they aren't necessarily functional, you know, they're, they're kind of canaries in a coal mine or, or a fire alarm that we need to be paying attention to, you know, that, that indicates to us that, that something's wrong and something needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so imagine if what, what we've seen, there, there are a bunch of different things happening to our party systems. And, and you will, you'll know very well that one of the other things that's kind of tended to be happening over the last 20, 30 years, and in some countries has deteriorated fast in the last decade or so, is, is declining electoral participation because people don't bother going to vote, right? So they're increasing numbers of people who are so outside, the politi- so alienated from, from politics that they don't even bother to vote. And in fact, one of the shocks of the Brexit vote was that a lot of people who don't usually vote turned out to vote. They Mm. voted for Brexit. These were the kind of alienated, silent uh, citizens that that we didn't usually hear hear Mm. about too much. So, you know, there is an issue that our politics had become very closed off. You know, there were certain things that were just outside the conversation. One of them, I guess you could say, is is migration. And that's part of the reason why parties like UKIP were, were so successful. The argument that I try to make, though, is that there's much more to the way modern capitalism works uh, than migration. And in fact, you know, my view is that migration is one of the most benign features of modern global capitalism, that the real threats come 
through what's happening in financial markets, from the instability that's brought by these sort of huge quantities of money sloshing around the, the, the global financial system, rolling up in one place, sending markets crazy, then disappearing and going somewhere else, leaving leaving the wreckage behind. So I have no sympathy for Brexit as a, as a project, but there's no doubt that things like the slogan, take back control, was a slogan that, that I could very much identify with. It's just that I didn't want the kind of control that they were they were arguing about. I, I'm and and in fact, in some ways, I think one of the tragedies of Brexit is that the, some of the people behind it are, are actually some of the worst uh, kind of exemplars of that swashbuckling, mm. irresponsible global capitalism, which you know has a lot of interest in money and not a lot of interest in people. Yeah, yeah. People who move their um, their funds to Dublin, for example. Now, I mean, you identify the, the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008 as a kind of potential reset moment, but one that was missed, you know, rather than moving away from what you see as a market liberal orthodoxy. Governments are both left and right, but especially right, I guess, that doubled down on that orthodoxy. Why, why do you think that happened? In, in some ways, you know, it's become almost seen as an inevitability uh, uh, that the banks were bailed out and then mm. not really held accountable thereafter. Yeah. And many governments went for this idea, now repudiated by many of the international organizations at the time, they were very enthusiastic about it, thinking that you could somehow get out of the hole that uh, the economy had got itself into by austerity rather than by kind of priming the pump and, and reflating. Why do you think that happened? I mean, there's obviously been a, quite a bit been written about this. Uh, Mark Blythe's great book on austerity, for example, and yeah, you know, in a way, what I'm trying to do in in my book is is follow on from that and sort of talk about the consequences of mm. the choice for austerity. I mean, I see it as being the result of political parties being kind of, in part, locked into a particular way of thinking, and and you could even say that they were almost brainwashed really into into this neoliberal consensus you know people in the international political economy called it the the washington consensus mm. right these ideas that you privatize you do regulate markets you allow capital to flow where it wants and and so on and so on you know that for so long those have been the only ideas that were considered respectable in polite company in central banks in governments in parliamentary committees and so on i think politicians were kind of stuck in that mindset and couldn't imagine because let's face it nobody expected the global financial crisis they they were bowled over by the the enormity mm. of it mm. and the idea that the answer to that was to do you know massive you know you've got you've got a, an exploding national debt and what you need to do is is basically double that <laughs> to to uh, to get out of the problem you can see you can imagine why they would balk at it. And also, to some extent, the public did too, right? Um, mm. Austerity, mm. you will remember, was a very popular policy yeah. um, in Britain in the early 2010s. It was it became in, it, even more popular after the government sort of eased off on it in mm. 2013 mm. and the economy mm. started to grow again. Mm. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, why that happened is is not really the question of my book, but certainly the consequences of it are are I think catastrophic because what we've really done is you know eroded people's trust in democratic politicians eroded trust in the established parties which for all their faults are still for the most part the only reasonable way of governing our democracies is through a kind of you know political parties that attempt to appeal to a broad uh, consensus all of that has been thrown away by this reckless uh, shift to austerity and and part of the reason was of course that governments were listening both left and right to bankers to financiers to wealthy people who felt that their 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 you know their interests were better served by 
clamping down on government spending than by actually getting the economy moving again. I mean, we talked a bit about economics. We talked a little bit about culture. But I mean, there's another kind of strong strand in political science anyway, which is the kind of institutionalist strand. Now, one of the impressive things about your book is that it's incredibly comparative. As I say, you look at Southern Europe, you look at the UK, you look at the US, you you know, you put them all into the, the, the same framework. But actually, those are countries with, in many ways, very different electoral systems, very different ways of even funding political competition. Does that mean that you don't think things like the electoral system, party funding regime, you know, institutions, if you like, really matter that much to all this? In the case study chapters, there's a fair amount of kind of institutional and mm. uh, detail and a bit of a kind of local local colour in which I try and explain how different institutional setups kind of filter, mediate between these sort of strong forces pushing in the direction of anti-system politics and what ends up happening to systems of government. But what I was really intent on doing the book was showing that, you know, every country has its national story. For us, it's Brexit. And this is why I objected to saying, oh, it's all about free movement of people and, mm. and mass immigration from Eastern Europe. You know, I mean, you can say that for Britain, but similar things were happening at much the same time in the United States, which, yeah, I mean, it had it, the, the Mexican border story that Trump played up on, obviously, and immigration was part of that story too. But a lot of the people who voted for Brexit or voted for Trump were not living in places with a lot of migration, actually, mm. in, in in, in, in some ways, of course, migration tends to gravitate to the most economically successful regions in a country. And those are the ones who generally didn't vote for right-wing populist parties mm. in, in most countries, right? Mm. I was trying to tell a, um, a comparative story, yes, but also a global story of how these vast global forces had led to disruption and show that, you know, even though in every national case there are these little differences, but in the end, it's the same thing. You know, yeah. Trump and Brexit for me can be categorized as an anti-system backlash against economic precarity and anxiety. This is ultimately the case I'm trying to make. But of course, there they have presidential system, they have federal system. Here we have the Westminster model. In Italy, they have, you know, weird form of PR and completely different party system and so on. So, so in each case, it plays out a little bit differently. But um, we're talking about the same things. And of course, part of what comparative politics is trying to do is trying to, you know, identify when, you know, something is an apple and when it's an orange, where the concepts are reflecting the same thing in different countries. Well, we're another reset moment now, aren't we, arguably? Do you see the same thing happening over the next few years as happened after 2007-8? In other words, you know, will uh, the pandemic and the, the, in some ways, very different response to the pandemic, will, will that end up just being another wasted opportunity? Will we go back to the orthodoxy? I really hope not. I mean, I suppose a lot depends on the Biden presidency. The first signs are that, at the very least, they sound like they recognize the problem. Whether or not they'll be able to show the necessary courage is another story, but they're certainly not talking the kind of language Hillary Clinton was talking in 2016, which is a language of, you know, we've got to fiddle at the margins. You know, Hillary Clinton famously had, you know, 150 policies or whatever it was, but nobody knew what the message was. You couldn't boil it down, you know, whereas Trump had America first, you know? <laughs> and politics often is about that. It's about distilling a message rather than having a bunch of policies. So, you know, I mean, I think Biden's stuff, a lot of it's about unity and so on. Of course, COVID does give us a great pretext for throwing this, you know, neoclassical uh, rule book out out the window. We have negative interest rates. We have massive unmet needs socially and in terms of infrastructure. 
and we have climate change looming. So it's so actually it's a different story than you know just over a decade ago because the climate change uh, issue is now front and center, whereas in two thousand eight nobody was really thinking about that too much. But also we have you know what people feared. You know the the turn to austerity wasn't just you know foolishness. There was a genuine concern about amongst people that if you printed trillions of dollars and euros and pounds you would get inflation. There were very good arguments that that wasn't going to be what, what happened, and it didn't happen. But you can kind of understand people being hesitant. The thing is now, the evidence is in, right? The results are in. We know that we have a problem now. It's deflation. And there are very many reasons for throwing caution to the wind a bit. We should have done it 10 years ago, uh, but we can still do it now. Here, the question is whether... The Conservatives will feel the need to actually live live up to the promises of levelling up that they've made and throw money at that problem. And I guess COVID has kind of thrown them off the track a little bit, but we'll we'll see. I mean, certainly there's no austeritying your way out of the debt burden that we have now, right? So I don't think we're going to go back to the George Osborne days. Will they have the courage to really go as far as needs to go? I have my doubts. Okay, well, that's a, a suitably uh, debatable a point on which to end. I'd like to thank Jonathan for uh, coming on the Myland Institute podcast. You can find this and other podcasts wherever you get your uh, podcasts from. Do rate us and do tell your friends about us. If you're interested in the Myland Institute, we also have a blog that you can follow. Uh, we also do run events, uh, virtual at the moment, but uh, in the end, they will become real. Uh, we have a presence on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and indeed on Instagram. So go find us there. It just remains for me to say thank you very much for listening and see you next time.